0: Welcome to Conversations at Mount Vernon's Washington Library. The Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon serves as the premier resource for all who are interested in the study of George Washington and the revolutionary and founding eras. Every year, the library hosts numerous scholars who share our dedication to generate and disseminate new knowledge about all things Washington. The library's founding director, Dr. Douglas Bradburn, has the opportunity to sit down with these scholars to explore their research, and we are so excited to share those conversations with you. Today's guest is Dr. Michael Klarman. He is the Kirkland and Ellis Professor at Harvard Law School and received his PhD in Legal History from the University of Oxford, where he was a Marshall Scholar. Dr. Klarman is the author of numerous books on constitutional law and history. In this episode, he discusses his book, The Framers' Coup, Building a United States, which was one of seven finalists for the 2017 George Washington Prize. And now, Drs. Klarman and Bradburn.
1: Well, welcome back, everybody. This is Doug Bradburn, the founding director of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington here at beautiful Mount Vernon. And I'm joined today by Michael Klarman, who's the uh, uh, Kirkland and Ellis Professor at Harvard Law School. Uh, So welcome, Michael.
2: Thanks for having me. Uh,
1: So Michael just arrived at Mount Vernon a few minutes ago, and I've been talking nonstop. so we're gonna give him a chance uh, to talk a little bit here about his really uh, magisterial new study uh, on the founding era. It's called The Framer's Coup, The Making of the United States Constitution. Congratulations. Thanks. So it's a big book. Uh, I'm holding it in one hand. My arm is getting tired. It is, uh, it, it could be a, it, it's, yes, it's it's looking somewhere in the neighborhood of 900 pages, including there are, notes.
2: There are a lot of footnotes. Yeah.
1: A lot of footnotes. But what I think is remarkable about the book, Michael, is that I don't think any, there's any one volume that's monographic kind of in its approach that covers this whole story.
2: So that's why I wrote the book. Uh, yeah. I thought it was going to be a short book, but it would be the only book that kind of told the whole story from the Articles of Confederation through the Philadelphia Convention, yeah. through ratification, through the Bill of Rights. But then I got interested in the primary sources yeah. and it turned yeah. into a book, big book and yeah. there are lots of great books on particular parts of the story but I don't think anybody tried to tell the entire story within two covers, so I thought that would be a useful thing to try to do.
1: Well, those of us who are you know, experts in the period knew immediately that it's absurd to try to write the whole story, there's too much stuff to do, but you, uh, uh, who, who, who are cut your teeth in obviously the law and the Constitution and the Reconstruction and the modern era, maybe you didn't know that uh, you shouldn't be writing that book.
2: <laughs> um. Right. So this is not exactly my time period. So I lost a lot of sleep uh, waking up in the middle of the night thinking what it is that I was doing. Um, I had spent a fair amount of time reading the secondary stuff. So there are a lot of great books yeah. that I was familiar with. Gordon Wood, Pauline Mayer, Richard Beeman, Jack Rakove. Uh, I taught the, the early um, the Constitutional Convention, the Flaws yeah. in the Articles, the Bill of Rights. So I read a lot of secondary stuff. What I did within a four year period was I tried to immerse myself in the primary sources.
1: Yeah, and, and uh, you've, you've, uh, you've amassed a remarkable bibliography of the primary sources. There's the great edited collections of the ratification of the Constitution uh, done by um, uh, John. Uh, Kaminsky. Kaminsky, yeah. of course, sorry John, I know. Uh, yeah, in that, that group at, at Wisconsin. Uh, I take it those were very helpful for you.
2: Yeah, the group at, well, the, the documentary history is incredible. Those people at Wisconsin were themselves incredibly helpful. So both yeah. Rich Leffler and John Kaminsky incredibly generously read the manuscript and had all sorts of suggestions and yeah. corrected innumerable mistakes and really made it a much better book. And since I'd never met either of them, I just thought it was an extraordinary act of generosity that they each spent dozens of hours on the manuscript.
1: But I think it, it speaks to your talent, though, and your ability that when you you – You started reading primary sources in the era and you were discovering a story that you didn't feel like was out there you know that there was something there that you wanted to convey
2: so there is a there is a as you know there is a story um about the constitution that it's a conservative counter revolution against egalitarian redistributive forces set in motion by the revolution i agree with that story i didn't feel like anybody had paid as much attention as they might have to how the Philadelphia Convention ended up so unrepresentative Mm -hmm. of opinion in the country. So it was much more nationalist and much more anti-populist than most Americans were. Mm -hmm. And then how did they get this thing ratified in a fairly democratic process, at least for the time? There's a huge irony here. How do you get the, the ordinary people to approve a constitution that in substantial part was addressed toward removing the ordinary people from control of the government?
1: Yeah. So, the, so uh, that's the uh, that's the drama, of the story that you tr- the the kind of tension you're trying to uncover.
2: That's yeah. one of the main themes of the book. There are other themes. I mean, as you as you work through this, I, I certainly was struck by the fact that this is largely about interest group conflict. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not about philosophical deliberation on what the best form of government is. Mm-hmm. It's more how can Southerners get as much representation for their slaves? How can small states? get an equality in the Senate that they probably don't deserve. Easterners and Westerners who disagree about how important it is to have access to the Mississippi River. Connecticut and New Jersey citizens are unhappy that New York yeah. has this great natural harbor and is charging them the costs of running the New York government. It's just ordinary politics and it's played by the same mechanisms, the same sort of strategies and tactics of ordinary politics, yet it is this great thing that we revere and still exists 230 years after they wrote it.
1: Yeah, so that's part of your uh, interest as well, though, is kind of like demystifying uh, not only the framers, but the whole process of the coming of the Constitution itself.
2: Right, so this wraps, in, wraps up together with my, I teach constitutional law, I've written some stuff on constitutional theory, and there are relevances of this story to how you ought to think about the Constitution today, and maybe even how judges ought to interpret it. You know, the the general justifications for what's known as original understanding interpretation, Mm -hmm. which is judges shouldn't feel free simply to innovate on the Constitution. They ought to stick with the original understanding. The main justifications tend to be something about the extraordinary virtue or wisdom of the framers or the extraordinary democratic deliberative process. And I don't really see much of either of those when I look at this story. Now, I I didn't write the book to make a contribution to constitutional theory, but I do think people who have these debates about how to interpret a constitution ought to pay a little bit more attention to what the process was like in producing our constitution.
1: But it struck me that you you were interested in sort of reconstructing this story as a way to help people uh, have a conversation about how to construct the constitution. That is to say, you need. We need to have a shared history, or we need to have at least a starting point of a history of the founding era that we can then use to talk about. Well, you know, your notion of original intent is based on someone's interest in fishing rights and uh, in the 1780s, and 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 you think, well, maybe we should move beyond that.
2: I think. I also think it's it's yeah. insidious to to deify these people. Um, they were incredibly talented and they were virtuous in the sense that they weren't trying to line their own pockets the way Charles Beard suggested. They were trying to do a good thing for their nation, but they made mistakes and they lived in a totally different world and were dealing with problems that often don't have any analogs today. And they had some weird values that it's hard for us to understand, like it's okay to hold property in human beings, it's okay to exclude women and poor people from politics. And a lot of their assumptions turned out to be wrong. So they built a government on the assumption that there wouldn't be the sort of political parties that we have today, right. and in some ways that was that, that rendered the whole structure in some ways obsolete. Within a few years, a whole system based on based based on separation of powers works totally differently if you have political parties and you don't.
1: Right, and and so uh, well, you brought up Beard at the beginning of that uh, uh, very good comment, and so uh, Charles Beard's case in the Economic Origins of the Constitution, which came out in what I mean. 1914 1913 something like that uh, and and really became to dominate a lot of constitutional historical thinking in the constitution i wonder you could tell me how you know what what was the impact of beard sort of in uh, you know in the in the courts in the you know in the judges in the jurisprudence in in the way they thought about using the past or using the framing, or was that not an issue at all in the 20th century?
2: That's a really interesting question, and I don't don't know that I've ever looked at anything on this. I don't recall, you know, I've read a lot of opinions from the New Deal. The justices um, who tend to sit on the Supreme Court would be very unsympathetic to Beard's interpretation. Mm -hmm. Beard's argument was, if you take the strong version, that these are people lining their own pockets because they own government securities and a national government with a powerful taxing Uh, Weapon at its disposal will be able to pay off those securities at face value. The softer version of Beard is they represent the interests of the class that they're affiliated with. I think that's a much more plausible interpretation. But the people who are striking down the New Deal in the 1930s, the so-called four horsemen on the court, that's certainly not a view of constitutional origins that they're gonna be very sympathetic toward Mm -hmm. on the other hand history departments just ate it up so Beards was one of the most influential books in the history of the 20th century which is kind of stunning because it was destroyed by academics in the 1950s
1: (laughs) yeah yes it was and there was a huge kind of reaction and then a reaction to that and we have neo progressives and neo neo progressives and I don't really know what now but now well now we have Klarman so uh, (laughs) Uh, but but it actually does bring up the point, you know, kind of like you know the the Gordon Woods of the world and the Max Edlings of the world and others, you know, and and a lot of historians, Jack Rakoff, of course, have, have you know rejected the notion of originalism as a sort of, um, you know, as as a philosophy that doesn't merit a lot of close scrutiny from a historian, you know, who wants to look at you know what actually happened in the moment. But it seems like it that that attitude isn't. It hasn't had a big of an as big of an impact in the in the law, in the law uh, schools, or, and certainly we have a very strong originalist kind of approach yeah. that's taught out there.
2: So this is a little bit complicated. I mean, yeah. I actually think the best criticism of originalism is not the, his, the criticism that historians like uh, Jack Raycove Um, are inclined to offer. I I think the best criticism is that the judges who purport to be originalist actually aren't very consistent Mm -hmm. about their originalism. So if the issue is, should the court identify a right to same-sex marriage or a woman's right to abortion, then conservatives like Neil Gorsuch or Justice Scalia would say, no, we should stick with the original understanding, we shouldn't make things up that weren't there. Mm. But if the issue is the constitutionality of gun control or campaign finance regulations or race-based affirmative action, they wanna strike those things down, mm. even though the original understanding of the First Amendment and the Second Amendment right. and the Fourteenth right. Amendment right. would not justify that. Yeah. So I actually yeah. think there's a kind of hypocrisy there. It's not. The historians, I think, mostly are criticizing originalism on the grounds that yeah. the history is complicated yeah. and the people who are doing the history as judges don't really have the capacity to do it. Sometimes I think that's true, but on a question like whether the framers of the 14th Amendment would have protected same-sex marriage, the answer is obvious, right, that no. Yeah. On the question of whether the Second Amendment protects the right, individual right to keep and bear arms, there's actually some historical argument on the two sides. Right, so anybody who wants to claim that the original understanding is going to be right. dispositive in every case, right. they're simplifying it. Yeah. But if their claim is something is simply that some claims are ruled out by history, I'm fine with that. I mean, it's true. The people who wrote the Fourteenth Amendment were trying to secure black people a handful of civil rights. They weren't trying to protect gay rights. They weren't trying to protect gay marriage. Right. You need some sort of living constitutionalist view to defend that and i would be happy to defend that approach to constitutional law yeah. but i think the stronger criticism of originalism is that the people who profess to be committed to it are actually inconsistent in the way they practice it
1: yeah the, a lot of the rulings that i've read as a historian of the founding both on both sides to be completely frank they they dip into the federalist papers or they dip into the even the anti-federalist papers they get their their time in the sun as well and uh, yeah and the history's not great history uh, you know so because it's really not history they're writing law interpreting law and so so in that sense um i think that everyone wants judges to be um careful about you know how they're interpreting the meaning of of things but um but the you know democracy has a a lot to say as well you know the the and the meaning of democracy has changed quite a bit that that seems to be an underlying theme of the book as well is that to what extent is this story uh, a story that um Or this constitution that's emerged from your story uh, in tune with democratic values today.
2: Right. So, when I referred earlier to anti populism, a large part of the framers' enterprise is getting away from the sort of mechanisms that made the state legislatures so responsive to the demands of debtor farmers. Right. So, small, uh, short terms in office, small constituencies mechanisms like instruction and recall, mandatory rotation. Mm-hmm. They thought those were the mechanisms that enabled the debtor farmers to get paper money and debt relief legislation. And they thought those were confiscatory measures. Yeah. And they were trying to set up a national government that both wouldn't do those things and would stop the states from doing those things going forward.
1: Well, let me, uh, okay, let me stop you there. So do you think that was a good thing or a bad thing? Do you think that the that the world under the articles was just dang, fan, uh, fine and dandy or that there needed to be some uh, pressures b- put to bear on those those uh, polities?
2: So there, there are flaws in the Articles of Confederation that clearly need to be redressed. Which Con- is,
1: by the way, a really great chapter of the book that starts out the kind of story. The so flaws of the Articles. Yeah. Congress
2: doesn't have a taxing power. Yeah. Congress doesn't have the authority to regulate commerce. Congress has no real supremacy. It can't even enforce treaty obligations on states, even though Congress clearly has the power to make treaties. Yeah. If states decide they want to defy those treaties, Congress has no way of making its will effective. Mm-hmm. Those are obvious problems that need to be fixed. What's going on in the states is a the subject of the second chapter is, is a little bit of a different story. So
1: you're kind of taking sort of like, I mean, and I don't want to do violence to your work because it really is a brilliant uh, combination of, of factors, but you're kind of taking, um, you know, on the one hand, the, uh, the sort of Hendrickson unionist or edling fiscal military or, you know, Gordon Wood or, 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 or a more classic Fiskean kind of notion of the, 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 uh, the weakness of the Articles to, you know, kind of enforce a national uh, polity. And you're combining it with the, the Beardian or the, the Holton, the kind of interior states to sort of conflict. So, there's as you point out, there's not one reason that people want a new constitution, or no. there's this movement to create a constitution. Right,
2: there are multiple reasons, yeah. and I'm heavily influenced, as the second yeah. chapter makes clear, by, by Woody, Woody Holton's Unruly Americans. Mm-hmm. James Madison, who's a pretty good authority, said that of the reasons that brought us here together in Philadelphia, dealing with these problems in the states is actually the predominant yeah. factor. So you asked, you know, is what's going on in the states defensible? And I think the answer is yes, and this is what actually makes me kind of initially, presumptively Mm -hmm. not on the side of the Federalists in the Philadelphia Convention. So the economy is in terrible shape, and they're trying to pay off the war debt by raising taxes. Right. So you have an economy that might be 50 percent of what it was before the Revolutionary War. People's property's been destroyed. Uh, you're being cut out of the British Empire in terms of the carrying trade, in terms of marketing goods that the British Empire can get elsewhere. Economies, right? Carrying trade. Uh, so the the economy's in terrible shape, but you're raising taxes. Uh, Congress is imposing requisitions on the states, and the states are raising their own taxes, and this is all to pay off the war debt. So any modern economist would tell you this is disastrous fiscal policy. You don't raise taxes in time of an economic crunch. There's no money to pay the taxes in, so they often have to be raised in gold and silver Mm -hmm. because you're paying off foreign debts to Dutch bankers and the French government, which are gold and silver. So farmers, uh, maybe a fifth of the hard currency that used to exist in the country is still there. And finally, you're 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 using the taxes to the extent you're paying off domestic debtors, domestic creditors. Those are mostly speculators who've bought up the debt at 10 cents on the dollar. So you're raising taxes, you're bankrupting farmers to pay off specula speculators who've bought off the debt. And farmers, I think, have a pretty good case. It's not like they're trying to just. Uh, welch on their debts. They're trying to monetize the the value they have in their property. And the way to do that is with a paper money land bank. Mm -hmm. So they're saying, loan us money, we'll pay you interest. We have collateral in our land. And, you know, show a little bit of respect for the fact that we're working hard and trying to pay off the debt. And we're going to go bankrupt if you don't allow us to do that. And I think that's a pretty defensible claim, well, and the Federalists couldn't if, see it at it all. It happened
1: like that in every state. It perhaps. didn't happen like that in every yeah, state. That's, that's the, the, you know, that's where right. I might quibble, but- Rhode but Island here, I, went crazy. But I, well, you know, it, it's interesting that it, in, in the places where you had a fairly strong, well, well, not strong, but I guess a fairly elitist constitution, a less popular constitution like Massachusetts, you know, where that is the story, and you get a rebellion. Right. Uh, you know whereas in other in other uh, states where you had a more responsive um, uh, populist uh, constitution you know you did get these these laws and some of them some of them might have been immoral tender laws of a kind that it wouldn't have gone well for a country over the long term even if they were short term solutions but you know that that's but yes that's happening right and, and i think so these so the people who don't like that tendency are kind of applying that to all the all the states, you know, imagining it and imagining a future of that. Um, right. but you're very good I think with um, you know with you know Shay's Rebellion sort of changes w- what might have been possible, you know, in Philadelphia.
2: Shay's Rebellion scares the, the framers to death. Yeah. I mean, if you look at what happened in a majority of other states, the legislatures capitulated to the demands for relief. And in a state, as you say, like Massachusetts, where the Constitution was designed to make the legislature yeah. a little less responsive, yeah. the debtors and the taxpayers just shut down the courts, yeah. and then they won the next set of state elections, yeah. which Washington and Madison couldn't believe was happening. Right. Yeah. Uh, if it hadn't been for Shays' Rebellion, there might not have been a Philadelphia convention. It's quite plausible Washington wouldn't have gone even if there was one.
1: I think you're right. Well, I, well we're here at Mount Vernon, so let's take a pause on the, the most important man at the, on the scene. Um, he, he he, I don't think he would have gone without without the, the violence of Shays' rebellion as well, particularly as he understood it through the letters Henry Knox was sending him, because Knox was sort of out of his mind with Shays and Washington is copying big sections of Knox's letters and sending them to Madison. It's like, what the hell is going on? You know, this is it. But there's nothing um, you know to mobilize somebody like George Washington than gunfire, you know, because uh, that that got his uh, that got his his heart a trembling. I think.
2: Right, so he's getting exaggerated reports from Henry Knox, and then yeah. from Henry, Henry Lee in New York. Um, yeah. He was, as late as February, I think he was saying he wasn't planning on going, and yeah. in March, the, by the end of March, he had changed his mind. Yeah. Uh,
1: so Shays' rebellion, you think, so if, if well, since the debtors, basically, they won those elections. In um, April, yeah. In April, so if we hadn't had the insurrection, you're suggesting that, uh, you know, that that the story would have been
2: very different. It plausibly would have been because there's no particular reason to think people would have gone to Philadelphia when they didn't go to Annapolis. So there was this Annapolis Convention, as you know, and and maybe not all listeners know, Mm -hmm. called for September of 1786 to deal with commercial issues. Twelve delegates from five states showed up. It was an utter failure. So they called for a Philadelphia Convention with a broader agenda in May But Washington was writing to his aide saying, is there any reason to think the New England states, none of which showed up in Annapolis, will show up in Philadelphia? And it's not clear they would have showed up if it had not been for Shays' Rebellion either. And then Washington Washington was very worried that he would show up at a convention, he would automatically be elected president, and then the convention would flop. So it mattered a lot to him that he was convinced it was gonna succeed before he agreed to go.
1: Yeah, and I think Madison, you know did one once again one of his sleights of hand where he had washington appointed a delegate by the state and then sent this out to all the other states so his name washington's name is on that list of people whether he's going to go or not you know at least the news is out in new england you know that well. Washington will be there, so therefore it might have some chance of turning into something. Yeah.
2: Madison was shrewd, and Madison is the indispensable person in this entire story. I yeah. mean, there clearly would be no Bill of Rights without Madison. There might very well have been no Philadelphia Convention. Patrick Henry might have defeated the Constitution in Richmond. Mm. Madison just played this incredible role in producing this, yeah. this whole this whole thing.
1: So one of that well. Like, Let's. I don't want to go too far down the counterfactual rabbit holes here, but in that context, so um, at a certain point, you know, uh, was there will within these thirteen former colonies that rebelled? I mean, was there some kind of will to try to keep this to keep a national story going? That so, therefore, we, you know, maybe it would have happened a year later or two years later or whatever. or, Or do you see this as sort of a last gasp? opportunity?
2: So it's a great question and it's really hard to answer because both sides have an incentive. It didn't happen that way. Well, right, (laughs) partly for that reason, but also because the public rhetoric is just destined to be misleading. The Federalists in arguing in favor of the Constitution, want to emphasize how critical the period was, how everything was falling apart, right. how you yeah. couldn't have the critical se- period, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. How there's going to be a foreign invasion. How the if the, if the Union breaks into separate confederacies, confederacies, they'll be at war with each other all the time. But the anti-federalists have the exact opposite incentive, which is to minimize the crisis and say, basically, we're just recovering from a yeah. post-war yeah. recession and everything's fine and no foreign country is gonna invade us. And yeah. why well, think that you know separate confederacies couldn't work perfectly well and we're not gonna break into separate confederacies? The yeah. best evidence has to be in private letters where people are maybe expressing their honest views. Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of the federalists, people like Jay and Washington, Madison and Hamilton, they really do think things have gotten to a critical point. So There's been this big fight over John Jay's negotiations with Spain over the Mississippi River. Easterners and Westerners are up in arms against each other and the Southerners feel really put upon. Northerners are very unhappy that the South is preventing them from getting a commerce power, which is the one thing they really want from the Union. At one point, Patrick Henry hears word from James Monroe, who's representing Virginia in Congress, that We're going to break into separate confederacies, and you need to get Pennsylvania on Virginia's side if there's going to be a war. Mm. To the extent that Mon- Monroe isn't just uh, somebody who is exaggerating, you know, in his own in his own private, this is clearly his best estimation of what's happening. Yeah. Maybe he's an alarmist, but if he's not an alarmist, he's really worried that things are falling apart. And clearly, Congress is falling apart because it's got no money. The requisitions are bringing yeah. in no money, yeah. so they, you know, the United States is embarrassed by by the. See now you're
1: sounding more like Fisk. This is (laughs) what I'm saying. This is great. Yeah, this is great stuff. I think what's great about the book is precisely that uh, the complexity of the moment that you can bring across. That you know, on the one hand, the government is collapsing, sectionalism is emerging, Uh, all this interest politics is pulling people apart rather than together. Uh, they can't enforce it. They don't. Ha- can't have a foreign policy. They can't enforce it. And then when they do get somebody like Jay out there doing something, half the country hates it. You know, so
2: they do. Yeah. Right.
1: So there isn't a real democratic. Um, well, there isn't a way for the people to express uh, any sort of national sense of commonality at all in the Articles. Period. Um, and maybe that was what a lot of them wanted. Uh, so okay, okay, so. What what are something in the so the the flaws of the articles and then the the story about internal to the states those are the two buildups to the convention itself right before we get to the convention in that early what are some things you you learned better than you know that you you kind of had by reading the secondary literature you had you had a sense of you know those stories of the weakness of the articles and the internal conflicts but what are the things that you learned through the primary sources that you that came into much better focus for you in writing the book. Right. that you want to get across to the audience.
2: So a couple of things. Um, the controversy over access to the Mississippi River was a much bigger deal than I had mm-hmm. realized mm-hmm. just reading yeah. from secondary sources. Yeah, yeah. Um, the yeah. Southerners... It's all over
1: the debate to ratify in the Virginia Convention. It is,
2: well. right. It plays a big role in Virginia's posture. It explains yeah. why Virginia is so divided. Played a big role at the Philadelphia Convention and demands for supermajority requirements. And and
1: you see it used as the way we see politicians today, where it's sort of like this thing you use to scare other people with, like, I need to get these westerners on my side. Let me bring up the Mississippi." Right, so it's all a fight
2: for these uh, Kentucky. Kentucky's not a separate state yet, so it's all a fight over these Kentucky delegates at the Virginia ratifying convention. It's basically the only thing they care about. They're only thirteen of the hundred and 80 or so delegates, but they're understood to be the swing votes, and so both sides are playing to them. So Mm -hmm. Madison and the other Federalists are saying, look, if you have a stronger national government, we, both sides can get what they want, right? We can threaten Spain credibly with war and we'll take the Mississippi, but we'll also get the commercial treaty, yeah. whereas the anti-federalists, Patrick Henry, William Grayson, they're saying, look, the national government just tried to give away your rights to the Mississippi River right. and they outvoted you in Congress by seven northern states to five southern states, and exactly the same thing is gonna happen under the Constitution, yeah. right? There are yeah. more small northern states than there are large southern states, and we just got screwed over in the Senate, right? Because the Senate is gonna be two senators for every state, so they're just gonna outvote us and...
1: Well, so let me pause you there then. We'll stick on this one issue. So why, why did the, or I mean, maybe we don't know who exactly voted for what, but I mean, so... What did Which argument did the Westerners buy?
2: The Westerners bought the anti-Federalist argument. They divided 10 to three, oh, yeah, yeah. so not all of them. I mean, yeah. John Brown, who became a congressional representative, he actually is part yeah. of the elite. He's right. trying to convince yeah. the other anti-Federalists in Kentucky that they ought to go along with this, but he's not right. successful. Future Senator. Yeah. I think that's right, yeah. All
1: right. so all right, so that was one. You said there were uh, one o- were there one other so things that came more into focus for you as important issues that get underplayed, do you think?
2: Um, I don't think I, think I quite appreciate. To- so one, one really interesting point that's made in the correspondence is how how, um, how provisional it was Washington's decision, how almost accidental Washington's decision to attend was. Mm-hmm. So there's this extensive correspondence between Washington and yes. aides yes. like it's Knox and David Humphreys. History, It's fascinating stuff, and given how important Washington's legitimizing effect was on the entire enterprise, if he hadn't shown up in Philadelphia, given how closely fought the ratifying contest was, it's really easy to believe that it would have turned out differently, and certainly Virginia's position might have turned out differently, yet Washington's decision to go was just really highly contingent. I think also some of the parochial fights, so you see New York, turning on a dime when the war was going on and it was being fought in New York. New Yorkers were big fans of a powerful national government with taxing authority. Mm -hmm. As soon as the war ended and New York remembered that it has the best natural port and it's able to... Um, export a lot of the costs of running its government on New Jersey and Connecticut yeah. citizens who import goods through New York. Suddenly, New York is a big anti-federalist state.
1: But it's a crucial point because there's that moment early on under the Articles where they almost amend to allow for a customs duty of some kind, and New York's a supporter of it. Right. But of course, they don't control New York City at the time. It's occupied by the British. So.
2: And then a few years yeah. later, New later York later is the state the that port, vetoes.
1: Yeah, I mean. And you can understand that. I mean, why would the state want to give up that that main revenue source, which can be so nicely, indirectly, you know, collected and not affect people? You know, it's such a great thing. The customs, you know, funds right. the government for you know decades uh, in this country. So,
2: so one thing that I know. thought was really interesting is you can understand how people on opposites of a debate, opposite sides of a debate, don't agree on first premises. So no. New York thinks that the port is a natural advantage that belongs to it and Connecticut and New Jersey don't see things that way. Yeah. Virginia believes that its Western lands belong to it. Other states without Western lands think we just collectively fought a revolution, partly to defend those lands, so they belong to all of us. Yeah. right? People think that things are their, na- Westerners believe that the Mississippi River is a natural right, it is their highway to the rest of the world. Yeah. Yeah. Easterners don't necessarily think of it that way. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's no different from today, Palestinians and Israelis, you know, in Northern Ireland, Catholics and Protestants. I mean, people start with different baseline assumptions about how the world's supposed to be. And then, of course, they can't agree on anything.
1: Yes. Now, one some historians might say that one of the brilliant things that the uh, the Americans are able to do at the convention, which I think you would disagree with, is um, that they, they create a, a way to resolve some of those challenges because they create this sort of federal uh, system that allows expansion over time and the incorporation of new states gradually as equal components to a union of states that have a, a seat at the table they get their two votes in the senate they become you know an important part of the system they're not a colony of a you know of some eastern state and and what would you say to that that notion
2: they compromised some difficulties that were tearing the union apart and other compromises they made didn't work out so well, so there's no way they could head off a civil war 80 years later. But of course, yeah. they weren't thinking about doing anything yes. to do that. I mean, they never. I don't think they would have dreamed that at some point the North would become determined to do something about the spread of slavery, and that would lead to a conflagration yeah. that they couldn't that they couldn't stop. Um, the, the point about Western states is really interesting because they almost just resolved that very differently. I mean, yeah. there were people like Governor well, right. Morris from yeah. Pennsylvania who was really worried that the Westerners would be economically radical and they would end up having very different interests from the shipping interests and the yeah. planner interests of the South. Yeah. So, Governor Morris didn't want the Western states ever to have as much political power as the Eastern states. Yeah. Madison took a strong view in opposition to that, but it's partly because Madison was a southerner, and southerners were all banking on the assumption that as people moved south, it would actually be southwest because that part of the country was less filled up at the time. That was actually an incredibly important demographic assumption, which is what made the Constitution acceptable to Southerners. Because yeah. in the short term, it
1: turned out to be wrong. <laughs> they, it turned out to be exactly wrong. Yeah.
2: That's another example of yeah. these yeah. assumptions they made that turned out to be exactly wrong. Yeah, so right. why assume that the right. Constitution, that was based on certain assumptions, that turned yeah. out to be wrong? Well,
1: yeah, and of course, like the small states like Connecticut, you wanted these states, you know, to retain so much representative authority. You know, end up being. Really anti-slavery states, and of course it's the Senate that becomes the heart of the slave power, you know, um, by the eighteen forties and fifties.
2: Which guess. is not what anybody was yeah. assuming at yeah. the convention. All
1: right, so so well, we'll get to this. We'll get to the evolution of this. There's too much in here, Michael, for <laughs> us to skip. Uh, you know, your brilliant work in, in writing about the the Constitutional Convention. You look at the convention, and then I think you have a chapter on slavery at the convention. Let's do, before we get to the slavery, let's talk quickly about the convention itself? What are the, some of the highlights that you don't think are in the traditional narratives of, the, of that story? Or do you feel like you've just really summarized all the great points of the traditional narratives, and what are those? Um,
2: what, I, what I tried to contribute of my own to the narrative about the Philadelphia Convention is an explanation for why it was more nationalist and anti-populist yeah, right. than what most they, Americans yeah. would have expected and probably wanted. Yeah. There have been great books in every generation. There's another great book about the Constitutional Convention. Yeah. I didn't, you know, Richard Beeman. Miracle
1: of Philadelphia. Uh, Catherine Drinker Bowen. Plain, True Man. What did Beeman write? Yeah, yeah, right. right. So, yeah. Um, Every generation.
2: So I, I, I did approach the chapter a little differently. So if you're writing a book about the Philadelphia Convention and you're an historian, you approach it chronologically. Right. I tried to approach it a little bit more analytically. Mm. So, for example, Madison's veto, his proposed federal veto of state laws, was an incredibly important aspect of the plan that he was presenting to the Philadelphia Convention. He lost right. on it. I think it's really interesting to think about that, but I I compressed it, so rather than talk about the three or four different times at the convention they talked about it, I gathered the arguments into... A narrative. It's not an historical narrative. It's an analytical account. Right. Here's right. Madison's proposed veto. Here's what he wants to accomplish by it. Here are the theoretical arguments against it. Here are the practical right. arguments against it. When it failed, that's what led to the supremacy clause and judicial review. Yeah. So I told that story I, I, a little I differently. I really
1: liked that about your well, the whole section overall that you um, that you did that that you showed the that you showed the framers. Um, changing their attitudes as the government was changing, you know, so it's sort of like, why are they on both sides of these issues? Well, right. because the government is different from the one that they were advocating for. Madison's a perfect example. Yeah, so when- who loses his sort of national representative government, and so so he starts fighting for different
2: things. Right, when Madison loses on how the Senate's gonna be apportioned, yeah. he really wants it to be apportioned according to population, and he loses on that. He desperately wants to shift power at that point away from the Senate toward yeah. the presidency. Yeah. But the main, uh, the main contribution is let's try to think why a convention was so different from what most Americans would have expected or wanted. How were the delegates selected? Is there some natural bias just in the pool of people who are likely to represent their states at a national convention? Yeah, who right. decided not to go after they'd been appointed? How yeah. about the people who went but didn't like the direction and then decided to walk out? I think
1: that's that's a crucial point. Is that you know these people who were more anti-nationalist, uh, you know, who might even be more populist uh, in that moment, maybe not, but. Uh, yeah, when they started losing, they basically didn't want to be associated with it, so they fled. That's a good, a good lesson for being in the room where it happens, right? Being
2: in I, the room yeah, where it happens. It's yeah, always yeah. a hard question. When something yeah. is happening that you think is illegitimate, do you participate, thereby legitimizing it? Yeah. I mean, do you not participate? Uh, sorry, if you participate and legitimize it, maybe you can make it better if you choose not to participate right. you can argue it's illegitimate right. and they made probably the wrong choice. Yates and Lansing and Chase should have stayed and fought yeah. and maybe the constitution would have been a little closer to what they wanted.
1: Well, yeah, and they need to, they needed to be of more political consequence than they were at the time. I mean, that's part of the issue. If the Minnows all flee the ship and the the big fish are still there it's but remember the, at all the
2: Yates and Lansing could outvote Hamilton yeah. so as long as they yeah, were they, there they left though yeah. they left right yeah. they should well, have they stayed and left, them. too
1: though to stop them from you know doing whatever mischief they were doing I guess
2: he left because New York didn't get a, get a vote with yeah. only one delegate there. I yeah. mean, it was a waste of his time. He came back because he wanted to be present when it was yeah. when it was finalized. But he left because Yates and Lansing essentially nullified New York's vote when they left.
1: Washington writes, uh, I think, uh, I guess it's the letter to Congress or uh, whoever the president of Congress is that he sends the Constitution to, and he says it was signed unanimously by all states and Colonel Hamilton because <laughs> there's not New York. All states present, and Colonel Hamilton, right. or something like that. i have forgotten good. that. You yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like okay, Hamilton. Um, yeah, good. So, um, so who are the uh, who are the uh, villains for you, or the heroes of the Framer moment? There, you just figure they're all politicians, and they're they're all equal in your mind. W- what do you think? You have
2: to choose sides if you want heroes and villains. And well, you, you don't know,
1: like the South Carolinians. I'm certain of that. I mean, you know, come on, the pro-slavery guys. Nobody can vote for them. These
2: um, no, I, I, it's ahistorical <laughs> to criticize the pro-slavery guys. Yeah. Uh, they were they were actually pretty impressive and pretty important. Yeah. Uh, Charles Pinckney and clearly annoys Madison and Washington. They see mm-hmm. him as a shameless self-promoter. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a couple of them that I don't admire as much as others because of the way they conduct themselves in politics, I yeah. suppose. But um, For the most part, I'm really impressed with them. I think, you know, the anti-federalists are, according to the conventional narrative, which deifies the framers, the anti-federalists are the bad guys. But I'm really impressed with a lot of the anti-federalists, and I think they have some pretty good arguments. You know, for example, you know, the federalists said, starting with Massachusetts, ratify and we'll give you a bill of rights later. And the anti-federalists said, you know, what kind of idiots do you think we are? (laughs) You know, Patrick Henry says in Virginia, you've got to be an idiot to sign a contract that the other side's going to fill the terms in later after you've agreed to it. That's a pretty reasonable demand. Tell us what we're agreeing to. Show us what the amendments are going to be ahead of time. Or their argument for a second convention, I actually find quite persuasive. So you had this secret convention. You closed the doors. Nobody knew what you were gonna produce. It was totally contrary to what most people expected. Then you tried to rush it through without giving right. the country a real opportunity to debate it. Let's now have a second That's never convention. That's in modern times well, at all. <laughs> it's ordinary <laughs> politics. Yeah.
1: yeah, do you think, well, another counterfactual, but do you really think a second convention could have achieved anything? I mean. Uh, would the government have been completely uh, uh, federal? I mean, would you had a, a unitary presidency? Would you, you know, would would you had any kind of, uh, you know, a power over commerce bills that wasn't like two thirds vote in the House and Senate? Um, that's probably the kind of stuff that would have got in there, I would think.
2: So Madison and Washington yeah. were desperately concerned about a second convention yeah. because they yeah. knew the cat was out of the bag, and there's no way they right. could reproduce at a second convention what they got at the first. I mean, to criticize that, you have to say, you know, I guess there are two different approaches you could take. One is, well, the American people actually would have been happier with that other constitution that you were just describing. They didn't want the constitution Mm -hmm. written in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. Or you could take a more elitist approach and say, no, the framers actually knew better and interest group politics and small-minded parochial politicians would have destroyed the nationalist thing Mm -hmm. that they were creating. So they were right and They gave the country something that worked out to be very, very good and just a kind of anti-common person narrative that says the elite got this one right and we should be glad that the elite imposed this contrary to the wishes of the country.
1: Well, yeah, I know that. I was asking you what you think. I know what both sides could possibly right. argue.
2: Mike, well, I'll tell you what I think. so as as I said could earlier. A second convention, right. have worked. My views about populism have changed dramatically in the year since oh, I finished all of a the book. the
1: states as a check, don't look so bad. I guess
2: it's not so much the states as that uh, George Mason said at the Philadelphia convention that uh, trusting the people to choose the president would be like trusting a uh, trusting a test of colors to a blind man. I wasn't real sympathetic and to that. Yeah. I thought as I said before, I thought the anti-federalists had pretty good arguments for the sort of stuff that was going on in the states. Mm-hmm. But recent political developments have made me question yeah. uh, the well, wisdom but, of populism. I mean,
1: majoritarianism in, in some forms and you know depending on I guess how they're expressed in this case in the like majoritarianism was something that the framers were worried about like simple majoritarianism. Athenian democracy, dangerous stuff, passions, demagogues. The stealing of property, the destruction of morality, you know, bad things. So, they added in as, as everybody knows, you know, all these these different layers of uh, checks on, on that, as well as checks on other things. So, um, where did they overdo it? I mean, obviously, you know, if we're not going to criticize them in the sense of like uh, the mores of the time, where did they overdo, you think, uh, the anti-democracy or the anti-popular impulses in the constitutional design?
2: So one thing I talk about a little bit in the conclusion is ways in which the constitution was amenable to accommodating more yeah. democracy right. and yeah. ways in which, which it was brilliant not. Brilliant
1: section, you know. This notion of well, how come Jacksonian democracy doesn't just over why don't we end up with a different constitution? How does this constitution survive if it's so anti-democratic? Right. Yeah. So
2: it, it's almost an accident that some parts it's of the It's co- is
1: my criticism of the, a lot of these uh, sort of counter-revolution Arguments about the Constitution, as if the character of American democracy was set in 1789, and therefore, well, clearly, it wasn't. You know, we see that playing out. So, so go on. I, I cut you. With that. I really like this section.
2: So, some of their choices, almost unintentionally, accidentally, left the Constitution susceptible to Jacksonian democracy. So, almost all the framers in Philadelphia wanted property qualifications. They ended up not putting them in the Constitution. What they did was a kind of tying arrangement. They yeah. said, people who vote for Congress, so the House of Representatives was the only directly elected body in the national government, yeah. we're gonna tie voter qualifications to whatever it is for the most populous house of the of the state legislature. Yeah. And that meant that states changed yeah. their property qualifications during the Jacksonian era. And that automatically meant that everybody could vote, all white males could vote for uh, Congress. But other provisions are not amenable to change. So state legislative selection of senators, it took 140 years, 130 years until that was changed by the 17th Amendment. Mm -hmm. It took a long time of fighting because the House was actually in favor of making that change 20 or 30 years earlier, and the Senate was able to resist it. Wait,
1: wait, wait. uh So— the, the first efforts to amend the Constitution to allow for the direct election of senators was in, what, the 1870s, 1880s?
2: The House was passing what became the 17th Amendment as early as the 1880s, and yeah. it took another okay. 30 years to get uh, the Senate to agree yeah, to it.
1: Okay, right. Well, is that, is, is, is that a long time frame, do you think? I mean, in terms of when it started and when it it's a, long time, it's
2: a long time frame relative to how difficult it is to change the state constitutions, yeah. which well, is not very right. relevant. Right. Yeah. But here are some more important ones. So uh, first of all, two senators for every state, which I think was difficult to justify in 1787. That one they actually made formally unamendable. So unless every yeah. state in the union consents. Which is held, interesting,
1: which I learned from your, but I didn't know that. I didn't know that the, I mean, I mean, I knew that it was in the design, but I didn't know that there was a thing that, that That's a real dead-hand really problem, yes. all of them. Yes. Does anyone smallest... know this? I don't know this. I
2: mean, that's amazing to me. Uh, Wyoming <laughs> knows it. So Wyoming has <laughs> 600,000 people and yeah. California has 38 million people. Yeah. So Wyoming gets the same two senators as California, even though California has 65 to 70 times the population. The electoral college system, probably difficult to justify today. Mm-hmm. It's both malapportioned and it results in disparities between the popular vote and the winner well, of the no, presidency? Look, and
1: all right, so let me. here's where I can be devil's advocate sure. a little bit, because I think uh, on the one level, you know, at, at some standard bar of morality, malapportionment uh, is our it the ratio between Wyoming and California is is an example of the extreme, the extreme spectrum of the way the, the federal system is designed and how it's evolved as population has changed and, and because of these incredible restrictions on how you could amend uh, that. Um, but, uh, so, so what is the right appropriation? Is it absolute equality across all the states? Is it to get rid of the states? Did not, does not a state like Virginia have a, uh, have a legitimacy as, a, as an entity that is much older than say Austria? Does it have a right to exist as, a, as something that has its own minority status within a, a collection of states? I mean, and who's to say what's right in that, in that uh, framework?
2: So defending some sort of malapportionment in the Electoral College, like in the Senate, has to be based on some theory yeah. about which minorities deserve protection. Right. No, nobody thinks that- That's the
1: question, which minorities right. deserve protection. You so said no, that much more elegantly than I, than I did, yeah.
2: Um, so this is something we talk a lot about in law school and constitutional yeah. law. So everybody agrees we shouldn't just take a vote on whether to establish a particular church, whether to enslave people, whether to segregate schools racially. We all agree, those are issues where minority rights deserve protection. Right. You need a theory if you want to defend Wyoming getting the same two senators as California yeah. for why people who live in very sparsely populated rural western states are the sort of minority that deserves constitutional protection in the same way that African Americans or Muslims well, as religious or racial well, minorities deserve protection. it have to be in the same protection? way
1: or it just can be an analogous way that these people represent a, the Wyoming culture and it deserves some kind of status uh, because of that Um, it's hard to differentiate is a bad example i would think that there's other states that have a long tradition of their own uh history their own traditions or culture like a rhode island uh, which is a tiny place to be sure um, but nevertheless has a you know coherence as a as a polity that's hundreds of years old.
2: So nobody's talking about abolishing federalism. I mean, states still get to make a lot of their own rules. New Jersey doesn't have have to have the same gun control policy or the same speed limit as rural, sparsely populated Montana. But we're talking about why one should have a greater share of the vote in electing a president or in controlling policy in the Senate. I think giving Wyoming or Virginia greater weight because there's something distinctive would be like saying people who have blue eyes people who have red hair or people who like football rather than basketball yeah. should have greater protection in right. determining okay. outcomes well, and it's I, it's I, really I, hard to defend that position well, I, I think
1: yeah, well yeah well that's if you believe that the, that they that these these like people in Virginia in this state of Virginia are just the same as random people with because they're random it's a, it's a random American so all Americans are equal across states and as John Jay said in his defense of Chisholm v. Georgia. Why is it that, you know, thirty thousand people in Philadelphia have less rights or thirty thousand in Delaware have more rights than forty thousand in the city of Philadelphia. That, that yeah, that there's some that, that individual citizens are, are equal across I mean that is a, it does seem to me that the, the end result of that is the destruction of any notion of federal
2: So I I would think if you cared about um, the idea of sort of some sort of state sovereignty, you'd want to go back and undo the 17th Amendment. That seems a lot more important to me. Mm -hmm. Basically, once state legislatures no longer select senators, senators are not going to be responsive to the sorts of federalism interests that states have. But that's not what we're talking about when we talk about Wyoming's benefit from oh, having Wyoming. two senators have it in for it's just I don't have it in I mean it's the smallest state I'll switch to Vermont Vermont's the second smallest <laughs> state why should Vermont have more power in choosing the president or choosing Senators all it results in is more bacon being brought home mm-hmm. to Vermont mm-hmm. that's basically you know it's demonstrable that the small states end up getting more than their share of federal highways or federal spending because they have sure. two senators in the why have, is well, well, we
1: have mechanisms within the state to redistribute power within those states and and those don't seem to work particularly well. Supreme
2: Court said it's unconstitutional to give rural dwellers in upstate New York more voting power yeah. to choose the New York legislature than the residents of New York City. Right, that was a strong argument. New York yeah. City is just going to swamp New York State if you don't re- malapportion the New York legislature. Yeah. Supreme Court said that's un- unconstitutional. The only reason it's not unconstitutional at the federal level yeah. is because you happen to it's write the, the Constitution. Constitu- yeah. Well, but you know the Equal Protection <laughs> Clause came later. It's not a crazy argument to say the federal Constitution is unconstitutional well, under the Fourteenth Amendment. it makes
1: my head hurt. Maybe it might, maybe it isn't crazy, but it makes my head hurt. Well, let's get back to the book. So as I wouldn't be a very good advocate of, for the devil as we're learning, but uh, or uh, maybe that, or maybe Michael Clarman would be a better advocate for the angels, a better <laughs> angel of our nature. But so let's get back to um, uh, so the Constitution, so, or, or the book. So um, I think that uh, you know some of the uh, the great conclusions you know you lay out here, this systematic sort of. Th- oh wait no, Before we get to, let's go to the Bill of Rights, uh, because the Bill of Rights seems to me to be something that those of us who don't study the founding era they they think. Uh, they tend to think the Bill of Rights was a really important thing uh, in the United States for the whole history. Uh, why, why is, is that true, is that not true?
2: So that is really striking. That's yes. not something I discovered. I mean, lots of people have written about the founding and they've made this point about the Bill of Rights. I just tried to yeah. tell the story again. And I do try to tell the story as much from the primary documents as I can, because I think it enables readers to decide for themselves if my interpretations, which I mostly try to relegate to the end of chapters, seem persuasive. Uh, The Bill of Rights was important to neither side. Mm -hmm. We've treated, at least since the Warren Court, as being the fundamental charter of our liberties. Everything depends on the Bill of Rights. The Federalists didn't want one. They thought it was unnecessary. They thought it would be useless because determined yeah. majorities will just ignore it whenever they yeah. care to. The anti-federalists didn't want the Bill of Rights that Madison gave them because they wanted general genuine structural change. What they wanted was a limit on the taxing power, a limit on the military power, a much larger Congress that would be more representative of the people listing rights on a piece of paper, that didn't really interest them. Mm. Madison took over the project, ironically, because he had not favored a Bill of Rights. He'd actually strongly opposed one during the ratifying contest. Yeah. He took over the project, and then he neutralized the anti-federalist demand. So he said, I'm gonna give you a Bill of Rights, but it's not what you want. And his his colleagues on his side of the aisle didn't want it they said sit down we have more important things to do we need to create the federal executive we need to create the federal judiciary we need to raise taxes because the government can't run without money you've done your duty to your constituents you promised you would seek a bill of rights so now sit down and be quiet and let us move on and madison wouldn't take no for an answer
1: one of the other striking things about that story that first congress is uh Know, that, they di- that Madison, I think, is originally planning to sort of intersperse the, the amendments into the Constitution, but they, they instead went with a more elegant solution of kind of you know, one right after another at the end of the document. And it really it gives it this fake notion of a declaration of rights, you know, which is a somewhat different document, a um, very different document, right. you know, that, that is somehow today we think of it in those terms.
2: Right, so Madison wanted to, as you say, inter-delineate the rights into the Constitution. Well, he thought it would make it clearer because if a particular amendment was directed toward a particular provision, it would be really clear what they were intending. Roger Sherman of Connecticut was a big opponent of that. And Madison said in correspondence, you know, under the Constitution, you need to get two thirds majorities in both houses. So these people who really thought it was important to put it all at the end, they were able to, yeah, we had to capitulate to them, basically.
1: Interesting.
2: And their argument was partly that I think, you know, we ought not to be pretending that we're, I think it was part of the effort to. Revere the original Constitution, you yeah. know, sort of leave it intact, and then there's a separate thing appended to it at the end. Mm-hmm. It would make it easier to see this as the product of these great framers in Philadelphia rather mm-hmm. than messing it up with lots of changes interspersed within.
1: So, Mike, my, my book, which ends in 1804, argues that the 12th Amendment is the last moment of the framing, uh, and, and, uh, and that because you don't get another amendment until the 13th, which is, you know, 60 years later. Uh, why the poor Eleventh Amendment and the Twelfth Amendment don't get the love that they deserve as as parts of the framing moment?
2: The Eleventh Amendment. you have got to get- end
1: a book at some point. We know this. Yeah. But You went into the you know you went into the Bill of Rights. I figure, come on, it's fair game.
2: The 11th amendment gets a lot of love in law schools from federal courts teachers so the 11th amendment which most readers won't identify overrules a supreme court decision the supreme yep. court had said and this was classic bait and switch from the federalists the supreme court said states can be sued without their consent in federal court which federalists like hamilton had said during the ratifying g- contest can't happen yeah. So the states are powerful lobbying agents, and they demanded an Eleventh Amendment. That still is the subject of much modern litigation.
1: One of the fastest amendments passed.
2: Yeah, it took a couple years to ratify, but it passed Congress almost immediately. Again, you know, remember senators are picked by state legislatures. State legislatures have a pretty strong view that they don't want to be sued without their consent. Yeah. Twelfth Amendment doesn't get talked about because it solved the problem. I mean, for the next 200 years, there's no reason to talk kind of, about it because yeah. it solved the problem. <laughs>
1: kind of solved the
2: problem. Solved the yeah. problem that yeah. you can't have people yeah. tied from the same party and the but other.
1: It also, I mean, it does institutionalize two-party conflict. I mean, in the in the course of that, not only in the course of the kind of conversation about that amendment, basically people are saying there have always been two parties. There's going to be two parties. Sort of acknowledging, but it also is the it's the first party amendment in the sense that it basically. Uh, it's what the Jeffersonians wanted it's not what the Federalists asked for when you know uh, uh, you know some of the, some of the people in the twelfth amendment were calling for you know maybe we could apportion uh, electoral votes by district and you know so maybe the Federalists could possibly win a national election if they could get you know Northern Virginia and you all know, these sections of states
2: which some states are trying to do today today
1: yeah exactly so is there a constitutional movement to fix the electoral college in that regard or is it more this i been. I was reading about this sort of state thing where you would just basically say that your state has to agree with the the popular vote, or something
2: like that. Right. So you could get a compact rather than an amendment. The problem is you could imagine states bailing on it. And it's not clear whether it would be enforceable.
1: Yeah. Right. But, and who measures the popular vote? I mean, I guess it's. I guess there's an approved popular vote from each state, secretary of state approving the vote. Yeah. And it adds up. Yeah.
2: Okay. Right. So, so it's the total. Yeah, there's right. an official tally. There is, although not everybody recognizes the legitimacy of the popular vote. Yeah, yeah. Um, So there are are a number of different ways in which it might make sense to amend the Constitution, but you're never doing it behind a veil of ignorance. You're always doing it in a context where everybody understands who the losers Mm -hmm. and winners are. So it may be that abstractly, if nobody knew whose interests were going to be affected, we could agree that the electoral college system doesn't make sense. It ought to be a popular vote, or we could agree on reapportioning the Senate. If you don't want me to really mistreat wyoming we could just reduce their advantage in the senate but the problem is people are never making decisions in the abstract just like the framers were making decisions in the abstract right the framers might have agreed in the abstract that we should have proportional representation in both houses but delaware understands that delaware currently has an equal vote in congress and they don't want to give that up that's That's a huge problem right we're not making decisions behind a veil of ignorance
1: well that's that's absolutely true so that does come down to kind of the question of um you know, we have a complicated uh, democracy in the United States. We're the most powerful democracy the world has ever seen. Um, that is, you would argue, a consequence of our our values and our mores rather than our constitution.
2: So it's a really hard question the, to answer. Or the
1: state, or luck, or the fact that the other countries are morons, or what? I mean, if it's not the constitution that is the framework of this democratic success, yeah. Then, then what is
2: it? So it's a complicated question. The the common p- law. Well, the problem with saying it's the, the Constitution, Constitution is that the Constitution yeah. has been accommodated to changes, so that we don't really still have the 1787 Constitution. We have an imperial right. president over the course of the 20th we century. Got an state. We have an administrative yeah. state. We have Congress doing things that nobody at the time of the founding, yeah. Federalist or any Federalist, would have dreamed of, and the Supreme Court's fine with all that. We also have a right against school segregation, women protected by the Equal Protection Clause, yeah. gay marriage, rights to contraception, right to abortion. None of those things were in the original Constitution. Would
1: so, have been natural rights, other rights reserved to the people?
2: Well, the, you could, <laughs> they're, they're not bad arguments yeah. under the Ninth Amendment. So yeah. we have a system that doesn't bear much resemblance to the original Constitution. So to the extent you want to— Well,
1: our society doesn't bear any resemblance from the original society. Right. So, so, so I'm going to look for— It's c- phenomenal that they've—
2: So I'm gonna look for explanations in other sources than the Constitution. So I think you have a society, uh, first of all, that didn't grow out of a monarchy. You have a society that was built by diverse people, uh, I do think Madison and Federalist Number Ten is on to something. That the more religious, racial, ethnic, yeah. other diversity you have, the less likely you're to get majorities agreed on a platform of oppression. Yeah,
1: well, but of course, a big part of that argument is the sort of geographic distance that sort of keeps interests from ever con- congealing right. as a majority in a national way, which of course has disappeared with railroads and disappeared with the telegraph, and now. You know, we really are in Athens again. I mean, it, you know, with instantaneous communication, uh, you know, across vast distance, we, we have the potential to be a very different kind of right. democracy.
2: So, so one of Madison's yeah. arguments was geographic size would be hard to, sur- yeah. to overcome in an era of primitive transportation and communication. But the other part of the Federalist 10 argument is just part with of lots it. of diversity, you're unlike, so the, for, yeah. from Madison, we'll the word.
1: flowers bloom kind of thing.
2: Well, I mean, Northern Ireland is the worst situation. You got two thirds Protestants, one third Catholics. That's gonna be a formula for oppression. Yeah. The United States, in the South, you had black and white. That's a formula for oppression. But in the Northeast, people were more worried about Catholics and Protestants. In the West, they're more worried about Asians and Caucasians. Yeah. And at the national level, that actually means you've got somewhat more tolerance. Mm-hmm. The Atlantic Ocean was a big factor. The United States doesn't need as powerful a military because it's protected from European countries, yeah. which, because they're on the same landmass, have to have powerful governments. That was an argument that the Federalists made about the importance of preserving a union, because if you have separate confederacies on the same landmass, they're going to build up powerful governments, yeah. and powerful governments require powerful militaries. United States had essentially no military until World War II, yeah. right? Yeah, United States had one yeah. of the smallest militaries in the world. Mm-hmm. And people today can't imagine that, but that was true for a long time, and that has something to do with democracy too. Tradition of freedom of the press that the United States had.
1: We survived a civil war and kept the Constitution, amended it, you know, so it's completely different in many, many ways, but survived that somehow. That's an extraordinary, maybe it's the path dependency story, right? Maybe it's sort of like it's so difficult to get out of this trajectory, and, and it's, it's continued to, to play on. Uh, if we so so uh, so clearly all right so we've demystified the framers we've recognized that there's all kinds of crazy things in the Constitution some of which worked out to our advantages of people but many of other things that, that seem unfair and, and it has supported a lot of injustice as well over our long history
2: they almost uh, wrote a constitutional amendment that would have been unamendable that would forever have protected slavery in existing states right. the Corwin yeah. amendment yeah,
1: yeah absolutely yeah that one and Lincoln supported that right he did
2: because he didn't think he was giving anything away that wasn't already in the right. Republican well, Party platform. Yeah, like,
1: well, we're never going to end slavery where it exists. The question is, right. where it's going. You know, that's sort of like, talk about the Southerners. Uh, you know, like getting too upset too fast. You know, and, uh, don't look a gift horse in the mouth or something. But um, yeah, so I mean, the, yeah, so again, there's these narrow, narrow escapes to. We'd be a very different, uh, different country. Uh, so, but the question, Professor, is. Uh, Uh, So how do we improve the Constitution? I don't believe in perfect when it comes to governing people. I'm more of an uh, Aristotelian perhaps than an Augustinian. But um, So how do we get more perfect again?
2: There's a debate among scholars about whether we ought to hold another constitutional convention today. Part of the reason is because it's so difficult to make the changes that some people think are really important because of the point we were talking about earlier with yeah. entrenched interests. Yeah. yeah. So if you could sort you of write st- a
1: new thing and then have a plebiscite.
2: Right. You but, the pr- but the, the you problem get rid of the
1: state. I mean, how do you do that? How do you? Well, the problem. So
2: the people who favor doing this think the system is broken and I agree the system the is Article broken. 5. And-
1: right? Are they called Article
2: 5 folks? So Article 5 authorizes a convention, but then it tells you almost nothing about how that convention would work. So if two-thirds of the states call a convention, Congress is required to convene it, but it says nothing, for example, about apportionment. So would Wyoming and California get the same number of delegates at the convention? It says nothing about how the delegates would be elected. It says nothing about any of the procedural rules. Would it have to decide by majority vote, supermajority vote, we do know that it would have to, whatever it proposed would have to be ratified, yeah. but they could change right. the rules yeah. like they did in Philadelphia. Yeah. One of the most important things well, they did right. in Philadelphia yeah. was to change the rules for ratification, right? They just made this up. Everybody going to Philadelphia, the Articles of Confederation, uh, the Annapolis Convention had said, whatever you propose in Philadelphia, it has to go to Congress, then it has to go to all 13 states, and they just changed the rules. They said yeah. nine states can put it into operation and not legislatures, but special conventions. So if we had another convention- that,
1: Well, that speaks to you your notion of it being a coup right I mean, yeah this is that is the core of illegal the coup coup like move
2: just changing the rules yeah. that everybody assumed were going to exist yeah. right so nobody knows what would happen and i think in today's world mm. nobody knows what even a, even a national referendum, would yeah. people support the First Amendment? I mean, there are lots of opinion polls that show when you tell people what the First Amendment means in practice, they're not particularly committed to it. Mm-hmm. Would people put in the Constitution that we're barring Muslims from migrating? Would they put in a constitution?
1: Well, well, so now you're now that you're less sanguine about populism, right. That you were four right years ago, three years ago, or a year and a half ago, year and a half ago. Yeah. 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 So, so, now, so what is so what, what do you think now? I mean, so you said you're not in favor of a of a new constitution? No,
2: convention. I didn't say I, I, It's a hard question for yeah, me because yeah. I do think the system is broken. I mean the, the degree of political polarization which is produced partly by the so-called Fox News effect that people live in different universes. I mean I don't watch Fox News, but I only read the New York Times, so I'm part of the problem too. Yeah. That part polarization, the fact that the political parties have become ideologically pure, which they weren't 30, yeah, 40 years right? ago cuz white yeah. southerners were conservative but and democrats. That's a,
1: that's a very recent phenomenon. Political it's, it's been straining out all the moderates.
2: And now we've reached now we've reached Ideal political polarization where the most conservative Democrat is more liberal than the most liberal Republican. Add political gerrymandering, which gives people no incentive to play to the middle.
1: Well, except for the Senate, but you can't gerry- gerrymander those states. No, that just. Wyoming only gets one. Uh,
2: not the, gerrymandered. The, the Senate can't be gerrymandered, and the Senate is less extreme than the House, yeah. right? There isn't an analog to the House Freedom Caucus in the Senate, partly for that reason. Yeah and then add campaign finance in an unrestricted form. So the people who are spending tens of millions of dollars, the Koch brothers, the Sheldon Adelson's, those people tend to have and views. And there's some people on the left as well. There are people on the left, but this one actually is asymmetric, because the yeah. people on the left are asymmetric, Are, are people on the left are altruistic and the people on the right are trying to buy political influence for things like well, that denying might uh, be, climate some change they might disagree they but, might disagree, should, but uh, i'd be prepared to defend the yeah, proposition yeah. Thank but God the but the money is saving the world the money in politics is a disaster yeah. and the framers would have thought it was a disaster they believed in protecting elite well, people but what they, they
1: think i mean right the framers don't. see this is what happens everybody draws on the frame i mean
2: everybody thinks that, that money is a disaster <laughs> except the five justices on the supreme court who make yeah. the rules so I think the only way to solve these problems might be to rip up the system and start over again, but I don't have any confidence that the system we got would be the system that I personally would like. Would it be Who better? Noticed? That's the question. I don't know. Yeah, I, mean, you, I don't you, know. You, you don't know. I mean, that's a revolution.
1: So, I mean, I, I can imagine perhaps in a better uh, – in a world where – well, I mean, where you're getting more, you know, a bigger union. I mean, you're getting more world government in a real sense, or you're – you're creating a real union of Mexico and Canada and, and the States and you have this new th- thing that has to be designed or something. But that seems to me you know many generations away and probably a cataclysmic event.
2: So I agree with that. It's interesting to tie that back to the framing because the idea of states forming the Confederacy was not so dissimilar. In some ways, indeed, they might have seen that as a more radical step than European nations joining the European Union. And there's now a backlash against it, right? Brexit and Trump are a backlash against growing internationalization, globalization. But you might see those forces as sort of ineluctable. You could see this as sort of a temporary hiatus but in the same way that we moved from states, I mean, people were so localist back at the time, yeah, right? They spent right. their whole lives in it's, a ten ten very, mile. The
1: technological differences are really right. extraordinary when you think about when you think about what's possible in terms of. Well, it, it is, but it comes back to I think a question about rights in democracy and minority rights and individual rights and in a system that has communities that have to be defined. I mean, you, communities by definition have have boundaries to them. You know, everybody's not part of a community so does a community have a certain status that can be defined And is that community a national state like uh, Britain or you know like England or in Bel- you know France or Greece I mean and so what is you know to what extent is that a democratic ex- expression of those people who are Greek uh, and to what extent are they willing to be part of a broader community of Europeans who want right. to who want to be who want to say we're a majority of people and you Greeks you got you're like Wyoming you know forget you, we Demo- do what we want
2: to you. Democratic theorists <laughs> have never had a very good answer yeah. to the question of how do you decide what the scope of the community is. Yeah. So in South yeah. Carolina right. they thought the relevant majority was South Carolinians yeah. who said we no longer That's care right. to be part of this union. Yeah. But in it's the north,
1: leap forward to say the people are sovereign but then the big fight is who are the
2: people. Right, and there's no, democratic theory doesn't supply an answer to that.
1: No, right, Uh, so uh, we look for the brilliant minds like Michael Klarman to help (laughs) us navigate this world. One final uh, theoretical question about amendments. Oh shoot, we better go eat soon, but it is, uh, this has been too enjoyable. Yeah, this is Uh, uh, fun should the supreme court be elected should they have limited terms should they be 15-year terms at most
2: absolutely so this might surprise you i mean i had a why would that
1: surprise i mean that's that would be more democratic it'd be more more humane
2: but a lot of what i've defended is probably on the more elite side um i think that's an accident of the original constitution most states went to elected judiciaries during the jacksonian era Mm. the federal government would have moved in the same direction but it's so hard to amend I think Supreme Court justice are essentially political actors, and it's very strange that in the United States we have this incredibly powerful court yeah. deciding abortion and affirmative action yeah, and yes. the death penalty. And Nine, it's basically-
1: judges telling us And
2: everybody knows today, just witnessed the fight over Garland and Gorsuch, everybody knows it's mostly political. Mm. I had a couple students who wrote a terrific paper about 12, 15 years ago, and I'm sure that they're right. So what we should have is 18 year terms that are staggered so that every they two years- Every two years somebody leaves. Yeah. That way you don't have strategic retirements where people choose who's gonna replace them. You don't have strategic appointments where you appoint very young people so they can serve 40 years. You don't have randomness so that Jimmy Carter gets no appointments but William Howard Taft gets six appointments. It would solve all, And you would solve the problem of people turning 90 and not at leaving the court when they should have left five yeah. years earlier. Yeah. But we won't do it because again, you have this problem that we're not doing this behind a veil of ignorance people have incentives based on the status quo, but I'm pretty sure that's what we should do. I don't know that I would elect them, but I would limit their terms, yeah. and I would take the element of randomness and how they, when they die or retire uh, out of the equation. Uh,
1: so the Constitution, please enlighten me, the Constitution, you know, has uh, it has judges appointed for good behavior, um, but they, but they only, it's, they only have the Supreme Court in the Constitution, right? I mean, the Congress writes the Judiciary Acts, which create the federal courts. I mean, could the, is, am I wrong, though? Is it all? Should, does it have to be all federal judges appointed for good behavior, or can, can Congress have the lower courts be more of a system like that? No. Congre-
2: Congress doesn't have to create lower federal courts. The Constitution right. authorizes but doesn't require lower federal courts. Right. So theoretically,
1: but the- you could have a statute in which lower federal courts aren't for life.
2: Yeah, there were people. No, no. You can have a you can have a statute that doesn't have lower federal courts, but if there are lower federal courts, the, judges, sir, the Constitution's be- clear okay. about that. Federal judges <laughs> okay, get get tenure during good behavior.
1: Okay, that's good. Well, on that note, uh, I would encourage everybody to go out and buy the book. Uh, the issues are relevant. Absolutely, they'll be important to you and your family and your children and their children's children because you can't amend the Constitution as Michael Klarman would say, but for those of us in Mount Vernon, uh, we still love the framers and the founders, particularly George Washington, so we really appreciate your time here.
2: Thank you very much for having me. That was fun.
0: We hope you enjoyed this week's discussion. The Washington Library looks forward to continuing these conversations about our early American history. Please visit mountvernon.org forward slash library to learn more about the library's resources and programs. And remember, Mount Vernon is open 365 days a year and looks forward to welcoming you. Thank you and we'll see you next week.